Great, good evening everyone. Thanks so much to Lindsay and the band for leading us so helpfully. Um, as Andy said, we're going to be starting a new series tonight. Who likes a new series? Me. Woo! Thank you for the woo. Uh, I do too. And um, we're going to be looking at the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter's a fantastic letter. It's written in a really, really kind of punchy style with lots of little snappy sayings and phrases. Uh, really exciting book. Bit of an action letter, really. Um, not, to, not to say that, you know, the letters of Paul all kind of you know, high thinking and Peter's, you know, more down to earth. It's, it's much more complicated than that. But nevertheless, there is a certain raciness about um, 1 Peter, which is fantastic. We're going to dive straight in, pretty much. So um, if you have a Bible in front of you, you might like to turn to 1 Peter, which is on page 1217. 1217. And we're going to read the first two verses, and that's all we're going to spend our time looking at this evening. But don't think that for that reason it's going to be a short message. On the contrary, there's a lot of background to cover first. 1 Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. So, um, the obvious question, first question to ask is, who is Peter? We kind of have a guess, we kind of know intuitively, um, but the author introduces himself as Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. And that would have been enough for any a reader or listener to the letter to know, yep, we know exactly which Peter we're talking about here. No, no other Peter would have had that description alongside his name. So we're talking about one of the 12 disciples that Jesus called um, to himself. And Luke tells us after a night in prayer on the mountainside that when morning came, Jesus called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. So here Peter introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Luke then lists the 12 apostles by name and Luke, uh, sorry, Peter is the first one on his list. So, This is the Peter that we're talking about. Peter is the author. And helping him in the task of writing the letter um, is somebody else called Silas or Silvanus. Towards the end of the letter, we read these words. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son, Mark. So Silas, or Silvanus, appears to have been Peter's scribe and may have been the one carrying the letter uh, around to the various churches. We'll get to that shortly. And he's usually identified with the Silas that we read about in Acts chapter 15, which is the Silas that Paul chose as his traveling companion for his second missionary journey. So maybe when we we get to the end of 1 Peter 5, we'll find out a little bit more about the character of Silas. So that's who's doing the writing. 
When are they writing? What's, what's the occasion for the writing? That's the next obvious question. And the, those closing verses also tell us that the letter was written from Rome, or codename Babylon. Now, there are sources external to the Bible that support this uh, claim that Peter was in Rome at some point in his life, towards the end of his life. And we have an example here, uh, a letter from Tertullian in AD 203, in which he wrote, Rome from which there comes even into our own hands the very authority of apostles themselves. How happy is its church on which apostles poured forth all their doctrine along with their blood, where Peter endures a passion like his Lord's, where Paul wins his crown in a death like John's. So in addition to the letter itself, there's evidence from outside the letter that Peter was writing this from Rome. But why Babylon? Why did he call it a Babylon? Well, because in those days, at this particular time, you had to be a little bit circumspect in uh, some of the things that you said. And so the Christian church got into the habit of using certain code names to describe places or people. And Babylon is the, the code name for Rome. If you go into the book of Revelation, you'll see it used in a similar way there. And that tells us something as well about the kind of circumstances in which Peter is writing. It's the kind of time and the kind of place where you had to be a little bit careful about what you said and in whose presence you said it, because the church was under pressure. The letter's thought to have been written about AD 64, um, and this is the time in which the persecution of the church under Nero was just beginning. And Peter faced this persecution in his own life and is believed to have been crucified upside down on a cross sometime around AD 67. So that's the time. We know who's sending the letter. Who's he writing to? Um, he says, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So Jews from a number of these places, particularly Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, were present in Jerusalem at Pentecost, if you go back to Acts chapter 2. And they would have heard Peter's first sermon. So maybe uh, some of the people who are going to receive this circular letter were those who heard Peter's sermon right back then, 30 years or so earlier. But however they heard it, whether it was then or through the preaching of the Apostle Paul, they have come to faith and communities of faith have sprung up in what we now know as modern day Turkey. When Peter says to God's elect exiles scattered, he's using the word diaspora that some of us will know from a different context because that's the word that was often used to describe the Jewish people, the Israelites, particularly after the destruction of Jerusalem and their scattering uh, to various nations. So this word again is kind of just a little hint to us that the context is a church under fire, a church under pressure. If we go back to Acts chapter 8, we read about the martyrdom of Stephen and how we're told as a result of that, as a result of that event, uh, the opponents to the Christian faith 
became a lot more bold and persecution broke out against the church and how everyone apart from the apostles were scattered uh, throughout Judea and Samaria. And that persecution we know from church history kind of ebbed and flowed over a period of time. And as a result of that persecution, believers did find themselves in all sorts of places uh, within the Roman Empire on account of their faith. So it's to these scattered communities of God's people that Peter is now writing. And what he expects is that this letter is going to be read in one church, and then taken to another church, read in another church, and so on and so forth. And Turkey is quite a big place, so there's quite a, quite a bit of ground to cover. But that was the expectation of a letter like this, that it wasn't just written to one church. We have examples of that, don't we, like Paul to the church in Corinth. But this wasn't that kind of letter. This was a much more general letter, which would have been taken around from place to place. So we know the occasion, we know who wrote it, we know who it was written to. I guess the key question is why? Why do we have, or rather, why did Peter write this letter that we know as 1 Peter? And there's a verse at the end of the letter to which we've referred already, which summarizes his purpose in writing. So just to read it again, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So Peter's writing to believers under pressure, and firstly, he wants to encourage them. Literally, he wants to put courage in them. That's what encourage means. He wants to put courage in these believers. That's the first thing he wants to do. Secondly, he wants to remind them that they are recipients of God's grace. And thirdly, and particularly, he wants them to stand fast in that grace. This is the theme that's going to appear again and again in this letter. The idea of persevering, keeping on going, pressing on, no matter how tough things are and how much tougher they are still going to become. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a very influential Christian minister and leader in the 1900s. And after retiring from his ministry uh, at Westminster Chapel in London, he used to preach regularly at uh, churches around the UK and further afield. And after one particular service, uh, the doctor, as he was known, he was greeting people at the door. And to everyone he met, he appeared to be giving exactly the same words of encouragement. Keep going. Press on, God is faithful. And at least one person in that congregation on that occasion was surprised that you know, a man of such vast experience and great wisdom didn't have anything different to say to each individual. But afterwards he reflected on those words and it was those words that really stayed with him. And he came to this conclusion that of all the things he could be saying to encourage people, this was as powerful as it gets. Keep going because he who promised is faithful. And that really is the heart of this letter. When we strip away all the details and we're left with the core of it, that's what this letter is about. Keep going because God is faithful. 
So that's by way of an overview of the, the letter itself. What I want to do for the rest of our time is just zoom in on the first two verses that we've read and particularly ask the question, why, in view of Peter's purpose, does he start his letter in this particular way? So, just read them again. There's only two verses. Why not? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Chosen. And this is one of the great themes of the Old and New Testaments. It's there right at the very beginning in Genesis as the Lord sets his heart and eyes on Abraham, chooses Abraham, Genesis 18. Developed, God chooses Jacob rather than Esau in Genesis 25 and Paul refers to this in Romans 9. It's there in Deuteronomy, so immediately after the giving of the Ten Commandments we read these words, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord has chosen you. And that theme follows us into the New Testament as well. So God chooses Mary to be the mother of Jesus. Jesus chooses his disciples. We've seen that already. Um, but another reference to that in John 15, 16, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So Peter wants his hearers and his, and his readers to be in no doubt whatsoever that they have been chosen. And he points to the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all three members of the Trinity, in the choosing. And in doing so, he anticipates three questions that we might have about the choosing. Maybe not the one question that we would really like the answer to. How does this kind of um, square up with uh, free will and all of that? We're not gonna go into that tonight, sorry. <laughs> but he does anticipate three other questions that we might have. And the first question is this. On what basis have they been chosen? What is the basis for God's choice? And the answer is that God the Father has chosen them on the basis of his own foreknowledge. And the Greek word is prognosis, which appears in one other place only in the New Testament. And again, it's Peter who uses it, and it's, it's on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You remember the sermon? He refers to the Old Testament scriptures and the prophecies, and then he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and prognosis. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. 
And this word means God's prior determination and purpose. Now, we use it in the sense of forecasting, don't we? So a doctor might say, the disease has a poor prognosis. The doctor is forecasting the likely outcome. Or a weather person might say uh, that the prognosis for the weekend is good. He or she is predicting some good weather this uh, coming weekend. But in the New Testament, when it speaks of God's prognosis, God's foreknowledge, it carries with it a sense of certainty. So the doctor and the weather person are making a calculated judgment of likelihood based on what they know. But of course, God's not in the predicting business. He knows what is going to happen. He doesn't just make an informed guess. But he doesn't just know about people. That he, you know, he doesn't just know that he's, that who's gonna respond to faith, for example in faith. To know someone in the Bible is to have a close relationship with them. So to foreknow someone is to choose to set one's favor on them. To choose to set one's favor on them. So when a parent adopts a child, they they show special favor to the child of their choice. The child hasn't done anything to deserve it, but the parent chooses to show special favor to that child. And our Heavenly Father chooses sons and daughters for himself, not because of how good they are now, not because of how good they're going to be in the future, but out of sheer grace, out of sheer mercy. There's no, nothing that we can claim, you know, he chose me because because of what I was or because of what I'm going to be. None of that. God exercises choice out of mercy and out of grace. So that's the first question Paul, anticip- Paul Peter anticipates and answers. The second question is for what purpose? For what purpose have they been chosen? And the answer is to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. So here we have the second person of the Trinity. In the first, it was God choosing on the basis of his foreknowledge. Now it's to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now you might not find the idea of being chosen for obedience a particularly exciting one. Um, In fact, the whole thing might be a complete turn off if you're honest. But let's just think about this for a moment. To give you an example, uh, Psalm 40 and verse seven and eight. The psalmist is speaking prophetically about Jesus Christ. So it's his words, but he's also um, speaking prophetically uh, in the person of Christ. And he says, here am I, here I am, I've come. It's written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will. My God, your law is within my heart. There's a real love for obedience, a love for keeping uh, to God's word. And that's just one example. So here are a few more. Another psalmist, Psalm 119, says, your statutes are my delight. 
Jeremiah said God's words were his joy and heart's delight and spoke of a new covenant under which God would write his law in our hearts so that we would want to do it. Job treasured God's word more than his daily bread. Paul said he delighted in the law of God, Romans 7, 22. And John said that to love God is to keep his commands. And he added, and his commands aren't burdensome. 1 John 5 and 3. So there's a consistent testimony in the Old and New Testaments that if we're in a right relationship with God, Obeying him isn't, isn't a burden, it's not, it's not something that we wrestle with, it's our delight, it's our joy. Obedience is the pathway to what God wants for us and to what deep down we want for ourselves. Ironically, often we choose to go in the very opposite direction. We chase after what we think we need, we chase after happiness, for example, Whereas in fact, if we chased after God instead, the thing that we were wanting, joy, would come with it. But we get things mixed up. One of my favorite authors, uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, writes this. He says, keeping the rules and obeying the commands is only common sense. People who are forever breaking the rules, trying other roads, attempting to create their own system of values and truth from scratch, spend most of their time calling up someone to get them out of trouble and help repair the damage and then ask the silly question, what went wrong? As H.H. Farmer said, if you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. So we've been chosen for obedience to Christ and in that direction lies our greatest joy. But we've also been chosen to be sprinkled with his blood. Now that sounds pretty unpleasant, doesn't it? In fact, it sounds quite repulsive, possibly. But the thoughts of Peter's hearers and readers would have naturally turned to one or two, maybe three ideas which are common in the Old Testament. So the first idea is the one of forgiveness or cleanness. Leviticus 14, for example, gives instructions on sprinkling blood over someone to make them ceremonially clean. And maybe this is the meaning that Peter wants us to to latch on to, that God has chosen us in order to make us clean, in order to forgive us, in order that he can have a relationship with us. God's not just chosen us for obedience, but has chosen us uh, for forgiveness, knowing that we will inevitably fall as we pursue obedience. So he's not set us up to fail. He's provided a way for us to keep going with a clear conscience. So that's one possible meaning, that God has chosen us for forgiveness. Another meaning, a possible idea, is is this one here, uh, the idea of consecration. So again in Leviticus, uh, we have Aaron and his sons, the priests, sprinkled with blood to consecrate them for their service as priests. And if this is the the thought that Peter wants us to latch on to, then it's this idea that God has chosen us for very special purposes. In the next chapter, Peter will spell that out. Um, We'll come to that, I'm sure, in a couple of weeks' time. You are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, 
Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. There's a special purpose there that God has called us to, that God has chosen us for. Well, I don't think we have to choose between forgiveness or consecration. I don't think Peter necessarily wanted us to choose between the two. I think both ideas are true. Both are statements of the great privilege that has been given to us and explain the purpose for which we have been chosen. So then a third question, a final question that Peter anticipates, and it involves the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The question is, by what means? By what means have they been chosen? And the answer is, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin and of the justice of God in response to that sin. It's the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to see Christ as the solution to our problem. It's the Holy Spirit who inspires faith in us. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us new life. It's by the Holy Spirit that we are born again and by the Holy Spirit that we are changed to become more and more like Jesus Christ. The Spirit sanctifies us by making us right with God when we first believe and then goes on sanctifying us, making us more and more like Christ as we continue to follow Christ with the passing of time. And without him, we are like a yacht stranded in the water. We're going nowhere. But with the Holy Spirit in our sails, so to speak, we can move forward. So, three questions. Three questions that Peter anticipates. Three truths about why we've been chosen, uh, the means, and so on, and the involvement of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To finish off, I just want to go back to the question I posed right at the beginning, which is, given what Peter is writing about, given, given the purpose of his letter, right, he's writing to people who are going to be facing increasingly difficult, tough circumstances, increasingly dark times. Why, then, has he chosen to begin this letter in this particular way? Why is it important that we know that God has set his favour on us? Why is it important that we know that our purpose is obedience and cleanliness and consecration? Why is it important that we know that the Spirit makes us holy? Well, I think it's because he's going to be telling his readers to stand firm in these days that are going to get increasingly tough and increasingly dark. And if they grasp those things, they'll be much better equipped to stand firm when the trouble comes. You see, they don't know it yet, but a time is coming when some of his readers will probably be rounded up and killed. Some will be torn apart by dogs. Some will be burnt alive as human torches. When they're going through that, they need to know that they haven't been abandoned by God. Far from that, they are the objects of his favour. They need to know that the troubles that are on their way are not going to thwart 
God's purposes, but rather contribute to their fulfillment as God's people choose loyal obedience to Jesus instead of faithless comfort, for example. And they need to know that the spirit who started off this new life in them is going to see the job through to completion. He's gonna finish the work that he's begun. He's gonna continue to be their help and their strength when the fire comes. So far from being academic, these three thoughts around the fact that God has chosen us, if we grasp their significance, are hugely helpful to us when we come to face our own trials and difficulties. Now we mentioned by name, I didn't know we were going to do this, um, some of the parts in the world that are facing persecution today um, in our time of, of prayer. We're not particularly in this country, are we? We might get a bit of hassle maybe from friends or work colleagues, but by and large, we can't really say that we are persecuted. But our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world are very much so. And to know these things will help them through that persecution. We, we're not being persecuted particularly, but to know these things deep in our hearts will equip us when things get tough. When we feel as if God has abandoned us or isn't listening to us, we remind ourselves that no, he's chosen us. He's set his favor on us. When we're not kind of going through a time of, of happiness and joy, we remind ourselves, well, actually, that's not why I've been chosen. I've been chosen for obedience and cleanliness and consecration. You see how these truths, if we grasp them and believe them, can help us in times of challenge. So Peter's opening words to his readers are just as relevant to us today as they were to his readers and hearers 2,000 years ago. I think we're going to find this letter hugely instructive and helpful to us. Um, but I'm going to close my introduction now with the words that Peter uses to close his introduction before he starts on his main themes. It's the words we haven't thought about. I'm not going to comment on them, but just read them to you as uh, Peter prayed them for his readers and hearers. Uh, let me pray these seven simple words for you too. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Amen.